Now, before I read chapter 12 of Revelation, I'll give you three hermeneutical points to keep in mind. Very basic. There's three characters you're going to meet primarily. A woman, a dragon, and a child. There is no, it's not too complicated. The woman is the people of God. The dragon is the devil. We'll talk about him a lot today. And the child is Jesus. Okay, so keep that in mind. The people of God are the woman. The dragon is the devil. The child is Jesus. Keep that in mind as we're reading. That may help a little because I won't be able to do everything in 30 minutes. Let's try. So chapter 12, Revelation. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, on, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to, the, to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the, sorry, into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who, serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to, to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to, birth, given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Okay, we won't be able to cover everything. I keep saying it every week, but if you want to know everything possible, come Tuesday mornings. I know it's early, but I spend, you basically get a, a university lecture every Sunday every Tuesday, about the things I can't cover on a Sunday because it's just, it's just too much. But what we are going to do is start with a guy named Andrew Del Banco. Andrew Del Banco is a professor uh, at Columbia University in the United States. Brilliant guy, secular liberal, not a Christian. And he has this to say in one of his books called The Death of Satan. For the infant Americans 350 years ago, evil had a name, a face, an explanation. It was called the fall. It was personified in the devil, and it was attributed to an original sin committed in Eden and imputed by God to all mankind. 
Sin was understood to have filled the world, sown and nurtured by a devil of baleful eyes, as Milton described him in Paradise Lost, a creature motivated by obdurate pride and steadfast hate. No one was immune to his charms. And Del Banco is making a point. It's a great book, by the way. Um, where he's making a point of saying, once upon a time, we had an explanation for the world's evil. We knew, we had this, for millennia, we thought this is the way the world worked, and it was a complex answer. This world was um, inhabited by humans, but also by this other group of people, these demons, specifically the devil. And both fell from grace. And humanity is full of sin and sinfulness, and they're terrible, they can't do anything right without the grace of God. Nothing good is done by a human unless God's grace is involved. However, as bad as it is, this, devil, this devilish influence on humanity made it worse. And he is behind influencing and pushing the humans to even worse acts than they would be prone to. So this is the way the world understood evil for a long time. Until, says Del Banco and everybody else, until something happens called the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, about 350 years ago or so, a group of a, a philosophical movement happens that says, hey, there's nothing in the world except what we can feel and touch. Nothing. So get rid of the devil. We don't need him anymore. He's no longer relevant to the discussion. It's humanity that is the problem. We are the biggest issue. Now, of course, that's partially true. Humans are culpable. We are sinners. We are guilty. We're the, we are problems here, no doubt about that. However, um, there's a problem, right? Because it, it centers and it says that only humans are the problem. And this is a common thought all throughout Canada. So recently in the Globe and Mail, a guy named Marc de Villiers wrote uh, an article, and this article was called, uh, Are Satan and Hell Becoming Obsolete Concepts? I have a lot of problems with that, that statement as a beginning, because the devil was never presented in the Bible as a concept, but as a real person. So I have a problem philosophically to begin with, with Villiers. But either way, he, he says something interesting. He, he categorizes exactly the way Canadians feel about the devil. He says, first and foremost, that evil, he says, you know, we can define it very simply. Evil is misfiring synapses and failed education, nothing more. So what he says is, you're natural beings. Evil in the world is simply a, a, a product of malfunctioning organic computers. Our wires are crossed, and so when we do something bad, it's just us behaving poorly because we're not wired right. Some of us are born with uh, viruses like a computer might, that sort of thing. That's his assumption. And then he goes on to say how we got there, how we came to think this, and here's what he says. Thus, the notion that men and women should bow down and worship some unseen abstraction, God, came to seem more and more undignified. The very word worship is cringe-making in itself. Similarly, the idea that anyone should debase himself as a miserable sinner just because a long-ago know-nothing ecclesiastic says he should seems primitive. So, he, like, agree with him or not, but he's, he's making a point that most Canadians agree with. They say, come on, really? We're corrupted morally and we can't do anything right because there's this devil also who's playing on us? Um, it seems so undignified, seems so primitive, come on, give it up. Which is why I unabashedly refer to the sermon as I'm resurrecting the devil. Not literally, of course, but in the psyche of Canada. If you cannot come to terms with the devil as he's presented in scripture, you cannot come to terms with evil and certainly can't overcome it. And yes, that's going to be challenging. People will hate me for this, but that's okay. And Del Banco actually gets this right again. He says, if you get rid of the devil, you have a bigger problem. And here's the problem. 
And remember, this is not a Christian saying this. We have an inescapable problem. We feel something that our culture no longer gives us the vocabulary to express. So what Del Banco rightly notes is, you can say there's no devil, there's no evil in the world. It's just people behaving badly. I just don't like their behavior. No right and wrong. Only thinking makes it so, as Hamlet foolishly says. But, says Del Banco, the problem is, you can say that, but then you have to realize that you, you contradict it every, every time you look at the TV and say, that man who did that to his child is evil. No, no, no. No such thing as evil. So Del Banco says, you have a problem. We've stripped the world of evil and of the devil, but we have the, still have the same problem. You know, you can change the language, but all you've done is robbed people of the vocabulary and framework to understand the evil world they live in. And he says, so there's a problem here. How are we going to fix this? Now, the Bible, of course, doesn't have this problem. The Bible ha- provides you, by presenting you with a devil, this, this powerful being behind us that is working on us, not to take the culpability off humanity, but to say he's aggravating it, taking, making a bad thing worse. That idea actually provides the vocabulary and the framework to understand and overcome evil. But will people accept it? Well, let's look at this passage uh, as best we can with this idea. And it's going to show us that Satan is real, he is powerful, but he's defeated. Okay? He's real, he's powerful, and he's defeated. So let's jump right in. The devil. Here we go. What's going on in this passage? It's very, it's, it's, I know it looks complicated, but let me break it down very simply. It's, it's recounting for you the history of the world. And the history of the world goes like this, according to Revelation and all scripture. God creates something, and it falls. It sins, it rebels against him, but he's not prepared to let it go, so he has a plan to redeem it. So he goes and chooses for himself a people. They don't choose him, he chooses them. I take you, Israel, to be my people. And I'm going to use you, and through you, I'm going to restore everything. I'm going to do away with sin and suffering, and I'm going to restore all things back to the way they were intended to be through you and through specifically my son, the child, who will be born to you. Satan, then, all through Revelation, is presented as a being who understands that this is a problem for him. Because if Israel, the people of God, the woman, is permitted to carry this child out to term and give birth to him, then it spells the end of him. And so he rages against it. He's trying to first destroy the the woman, the people of God. Failing that, he waits to devour the child when he comes out. Can't do that. So then he says, I'm going to mar the creation then. I'm going to wreak havoc as best I can, knowing that my time is short. This is what the book, this is what this chapter is telling, very simply put. Now, there's a, the Bible's assumption that there is a devil is laughable today, right? You can present Jesus, salvation, all these things, and it's not quite laughable. The devil is laughable, and I have to wonder if we removed him or if he removed himself. But one way or the other, you present this idea of the devil, people kind of giggle and they laugh, but, you know, I wouldn't giggle and laugh because... Um, well, for a number of reasons, but let's just play this philosophically for a moment. The problem with removing the devil is it leaves you, as I said, with a bigger problem. See, um, if there's no devil, there's no evil. And if there's no evil, then stop complaining about Trudeau. Stop complaining about rape, about economies, about anything, because evil assumes that there's a way the world should be, and it's not that way. But if there is no God and there is no devil, then there's no way the world should be. Imagine walking out into a field. The game of soccer has never been invented, and you have a ball, and somebody just punches you in the face and takes your ball. 
you would say, that's a foul. He'd say, says who? Where's the rules? And this is the problem with saying there's no devil and no God. The atheistic worldview says, if there's no rules, then stop complaining. Suck it up. The strong survive. There's nothing. So when your child is violated, you don't cry that there's evil, says the atheist. There's, it's just the best. You may not like it, but it's just the way life is. It's not evil. What the person did is not evil because there's no concept for evil because there's no should. When somebody says you should behave a certain way, atheism says should is not a real concept. Who says you should behave that way? There's no God to tell you you should. So there's a problem because atheists, of course, and non-believers and skeptics still think the world is evil, right? So they smuggle in the idea. And nobody more understood this than a recent very profound, uh, profoundly anti-Christian atheist named Christopher Hitchens. He passed away a few years ago from cancer. In fact, I remember when he was dying, he told everybody, don't pray for me to a silent dead God. It's not worth it. He just died as an atheist. That's his business. But he even understood this problem because he said, there's no such thing as evil. There can't be. But when he was faced with Osama bin Laden, who masterminded the 9-11 attacks and all of that, we know all of that, Hitchens said, I have a problem with my worldview because I believe he is the embodiment of evil, but I don't believe there's evil. So Hitchens even knew, I have a problem because if I don't believe in evil, that means I don't believe in evil. And so you see... He has the same issue we have when we strip the devil out of anything. When we do that, we have, you, what do you, you may feel better about your life, right? That you've had some kind of coup against the ancient primitive worldview, but you've actually hurt yourself because now you don't know how to account for evil in the world because you've just said there's no such thing. And Hitchens understood that, and we all need to understand it because without it, we have problems because we still feel there is evil. There's a guy named uh, Thomas Bergenthal, he was a lawyer. Uh, he became a lawyer after, uh, eventually, but at nine years old, he was in Auschwitz. And when he was in Auschwitz, he, he tells a story about how there was these, this one guy who was caught trying to escape. Uh, one Jewish uh, prisoner was caught trying to escape. So the SS guard takes the man and decides to make a, uh, an example of him. And he puts him on a stool and a noose beside him. But rather than just hang him, he says, you know what, I've known this, this guy who is trying to escape, he's been hanging around with a friend of his who is his best friend, and they happen to be at the camp together. So I'm going to get that guy to hang him. So he calls his best friend up and says, you put the noose around his head and kick the stool out from under him. And the, yeah, of course, the friend is terrified, and he's, he's, pained. he's trying to do it, but his hands are shaking so much he can't get the noose over the head of his friend. So the man on the stool takes the noose, kisses his friend's hand, and puts the noose on his own head. The SS guard is so angry, he just kicks the stool out and he dies there and shoves the man off the, the platform. Bergenthal later, having a nine-year-old watching this, would later grow up and he just, he's writing about it and he says, what was happening? Why, why did the man do Why did the guard do this? Because if he was just trying to punish him, he could have just shot him or hung him. Why does he bring the friend up? He said it can only be because he is trying to bring suffering into the friendship. He's trying to do something worse than just kill He's trying to bring terror, humiliation, shame into it. And he says, how do I account for that sort of evil? Not just bad things that we do to each other, cutting people off, stealing them, spending the, stealing their wives, whatever we do. But instead, how do we account for that sort of evil? And the problem is, you cannot. Would you have the nerve to go to him and say, there's no such thing as evil. You just happen to be weak. You know? And listen, there's no help in the Eastern religions, which is always interesting to me that people seem to love 
Eastern religions, right? We think there's yoga and Buddhism and all these things are so noble. Um, but the moment they start talking about a devil, we say, no, no, no. No, that's, that, they've gone too far. Um, I'll get back to them eventually. So we have a problem here, that there is this evil. And all of a sudden now, in the face of these sorts of things, and there's so many, listen, I could recount, and you all know the stories, we could recount all sorts of, uh, of acts of evil. Is it now that crazy to believe that there is some force in the world that is bent on destroying us? Is it really that difficult to believe, given what we see in the world? Um, is it that weird to think that he is so angry that he can't get to God, so he's going to mar his children instead? One of my favorite plays and movies is, is Amadeus. You may have heard me uh, talk about it before. It's written by a guy named Peter Schaefer. And in it, uh, there's a, a conductor named Salieri. He's Italian, and he loves, he's great. He, all, he, he wants to be the greatest conductor in the world, and he is, until Mozart comes along. And Mozart just makes him look stupid. Mozart is this kid who is, by the time he hits 19 and 20, he's already not just the best, but arguably the best ever. Brilliant composer. And Salieri gets angry. He says, God, you've, what are you doing? I've lived such a good, virtuous life, and now you're robbing me of my voice. Whereas this Mozart is a, is a conniving, smutty little boy who likes women and drinking, and he's a, a terrible guy, and you give him the skill. Salieri gets so angry, here is what he yells at God. So be it. From this time on, we are enemies, you and I. I'll not accept it from you. Do you hear? They say God is not mocked. I tell you, man is not mocked. I am not mocked. I name thee now Nemico Eterno. If you know Italian, it's an eternal enemy. And this I swear, to my last breath I shall block you on earth as far as I am able. I will hinder and harm your creature, Mozart, on earth as far as I am able. I will ruin your incarnation. What use, after all, is man if not to teach God his lessons? So, where does he learn this idea that I can't get to God, so I'll just crush his kid? gets it from Satan. Where do you and I get it? Where do we get it when we have messy divorces and you can't get at the spouse, so you take their stuff or take their children? What do you do when you can't get to the pastor, so you slander them online? Or what does the pastor do when he can't get to you one-on-one, -on -one, so he slanders you in his sermon? Right? I haven't, I'm not doing that to you, I hope. But, but you see what we do. We're, we're copying our father, the devil. This is what Christ says when he attacks. We learn this from somewhere. So is it really that crazy? Now, I'll close this first part here because I don't want to belabor it. But let me say, if you're a skeptic and you're saying, yeah, okay, nice ideas, but it's still, there's still no proof. Let me just leave with four considerations I heard from another thinker who's far cleverer than me. I'll leave you with four ideas very quick. First one, if you're a skeptic and you're not believing any of this, consider this. Consider the fact that you might be the one who's being simplistic. I know it's hard to admit we may be simplistic. But if the entire world for the history of humanity has thought about the devil and you disagree, could you just admit maybe you're being a little naive? Is it possible? Second thing I would say is, is it possible that you are culturally narrow? Here, you're probably thinking I'm narrow, but is it possible you are? Because the rest of the world doesn't have a problem accepting this. Asia, Africa, right? There's no issues there, uh, Latin America as well. They, have, they seem to think that this is a logical explanation for the life that they experience. And surely, there's plenty of wisdom in these cultures, right? They're not idiots. Are, are, we, are we prepared to say, no, no, we Westerners know it all? And that's where you bring up the interesting part. You'll do their yoga, won't you? And you'll read their books and you'll practice their meditation, but when they talk about the devil, it's like, no, no, sorry. This leads me to the third point. Consider that you're being a hypocrite. 
and you're inconsistent. You believe there's a God. Most Canadians believe there's a God, but it's interesting. 70%, I think, Canadians believe there's some sort of a God or higher power, but only 30% believe in a devil. Can you at least admit that maybe you're being inconsistent in the way you think? Let's just admit that part. And lastly, consider that if you do not accept this view of the devil, then you will never understand the evil in your life, your family, and in the world, and you'll never be able to conquer it. You'll always be a person thinking that just education will help. More money will help. Better thinking will help. Just get rid of the church, and then you'll have you know, the, the silliness of John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. John Lennon, bless you, you're, you're a fool. It's a foolish philosophy. But I understand it. So are we at least prepared to consider that you might be wrong? Maybe? Maybe not. That's okay. Next thing. If he's real, but he's also powerful. What you get in this passage is a peek at this cosmic struggle that's going on behind the scenes. That what is happening on earth is an act of uh, an acting out of what has been happening in heaven and continues to happen. And I've said it before, these three characters, the woman, the dragon, and the child. Notice in the passage, only two of them are described as signs. There's a sign in heaven, it's a woman. There's this other sign in heaven, it's a dragon. The child is not a sign. Interesting. Because a sign points to something beyond itself that's real. If I have a sign that says Toronto, 64 kilometers, the sign is not real. Not, but it's pointing to something real. You can expect something called Toronto, but it won't look like the sign. In the same way, when you see a woman and a dragon depicted here, don't look for a real woman and a real dragon. If you do, you're missing what he's telling you. There's signs pointing to something. But it's interesting that the sun and the child is not a sign. Interesting, right? That is real. There's a, a literal sun that you can expect. So when it describes this dragon, how does it describe him? Fiery red. The word for red, by the way, is not the word red. It just says pyros, which means fire. So he's like fire. He has seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. Sevens and tens are both these numbers of completion. Seven we've talked about ad nauseum for this series. Ten, how many fingers? Ten. How many toes? Ten. Completion. So this creature, this, this dragon, is the complete, perfect embodiment of evil. There's, you can't get more evil. This is evilness personified. And he has crowns, which means he's got authority. He's fiery, he's blood-colored, which means he's violent. And so what you have is this creature that is the fullness of evil. He has authority, power, and violence. It's not by accident that Martin Luther, in that great old hymn, A Mighty Fortress, says... For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Meaning, you cannot fight the devil by yourself. You're weak. He is not. On earth is not his equal. Martin Luther isn't making it up. It's scriptural. He's a powerful, powerful being. So, what does he do with this power? Well, the, the, the passage shows us three things it mentions directly. First, it says in verse 9, He's a deceiver. So the first thing the enemy does, he comes and he deceives, which means he attacks truth. He's a father of lies. So what does he want more than anything? Well, he wants to be God. So what is he going to make us think? That he is God as best he can. He's going to rob God everywhere he can with lies, and not just big lies. Sometimes we think these are massive uh, lies, but they're not often. Often they're the small lies that slowly chip away at the truth. So he wants to be God. He will deceive us. Second thing he does, he accuses. Verse 10, he's the accuser. Remember Satan in Job uh, chapter 1? What does he do? He accuses Job. He goes to God and says, Job is a fair-weather Christian, you know, believer. He's only being, he only likes you because everything's going well. 
And he does it constantly. He sows doubt and guilt in you and I. And you see it all the time. Every time you feel that sense, and now there's some truth in it. This is the danger of his accusations, is they're partly true. And we'll talk about how we can fight that in a minute. But they're partly true. When he comes and says things like, you're not the father you should be, he's probably partly right, and we know that. And because there is some truth in it, we are prone to it. So he comes, he deceives, he accuses, and lastly, he kills. He's called the devourer. He pursues, he, commit, he, he conducts war. He intimidates through the threat of death. And that's a very powerful tool because, as Ernest Becker said, he was the Pulitzer Prize winner in 1974 in a book called The Denial of Death. And he says, of all things that move man, one of the principal ones is his terror of death. We're so afraid of dying, he says, that we do everything we can to avoid it or to hold it off or to not think about it and distract ourselves from it. And the reason we are so terrified of death as humans is because we've become naturalists. Remember this enlightenment I talked about. There's nothing in the world but what we see and feel. There's no other life beyond this one. So you better protect it, because it's all you have. This has led to one of, in 1993, is the first time you see this term coming up on the screen, YOLO. Everybody knows what that is, right? Drake, the great Canadian, great? No, air quotes, great, great, I don't know. Uh, musician sang a song in 2011 that made this very famous. It, means, it stands for, you only live once. And this idea has led, and it spawns out of the culture. We as Canadians are under the impression that life is so finite that we have to treat our lives like a cruise vacation, which means you've got seven days, you better eat at every buffet. You better go to every show. You better hit every stop, every port. Suck the goodness out of life like you're sucking marrow from a bone. Do everything you can because you only live once. And if you think you only live once, how are you going to fight to stay alive? How are you going to be shocked when people say, I'm going to be a missionary in a dangerous place? Why would you do that? YOLO. Why would you do that? You see, death looms so large for us. It's such a fear that all the enemy needs to do is rattle his saber occasionally. And we're shocked. Let's back away. Because he tells us continually, listen, if you persist in your faith, you're going to lose your friends, your life, your family, everything. Don't do it. And the threat is so great. It's almost like uh, trying to grab a, a gambler away from the blackjack table. To the gambler, the, the addict, there is no life outside of the felt and the plastic of the cards and the sounds of the chips and that rush of saying, hit me. There's nothing. So to pull them away from that table is to essentially kill them because it's all they've ever known. And so the threat of death is to us. We, we, we can't even, we don't want to think about it. And as a result, it's a very good tool. And this is why at the end of this passage, it says that from his mouth pours the stream. Well, what comes from the mouth of the enemy? Accusation, deception, and death threats. And as it pours out to the woman, this is how he tries to kill. He tries to use his power. And listen, it's not, it's not a weakness. It's a strong power. Look at what deception, accusations, and the threat of death have done. So he's incredibly powerful, and he's real. But then we get to the fact that he's defeated, which I think, obviously, is the most important part. Despite all this power, he's defeated. He's defeated cosmically, and then he comes to Earth, and he decides, I'm going to try to wreak havoc here, and he's beaten here as well. And this comes, look at the language John uses. He uses what they call the prophetic perfect, meaning he speaks about future things as if they've already happened. So in chapter, verses 10 to 12, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser and our brothers, uh, of our brothers, 
has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice. That rejoices in the present tense. All of it suggests that even though, here's the paradox, even though he's still active and dangerous, we have conquered, we have won, and we should rejoice in that victory, which is paradoxical. So you see why Paul in his epistles starts talking about how you should rejoice in your suffering, not because it's fun, but because you know that the sufferings are meant to make you better because they can't end you because the war has been won. But think about this now. He's been defeated, but he's still dangerous. And this, probably the best example, the most common one, is to think this in the same way you would think of D-Day, when the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy and they established a beachhead. From that point on, everyone knew the war was over. Hitler was finished, and he knew it. And as a result, the war carried on for another year in Europe. And 600,000 Americans alone died. Millions of people still died. So there was still danger. But the war was effectively over. And this is the similar view now. The war is done. Normandy has been, you know, the cross at Calvary, Calvary is, is, the, um, is the Normandy, theologically, of the world. The beach has been established. He is finished. He cannot win. But he remains dangerous because he rages knowing he's at the end. There was this great, well, great, again, air quotes. I like him. Dylan, Dylan Thomas was a poet, a Welsh poet. Died tragically. He was a drinker. He was just a mess of a life. But wonderful poet. And in his most famous, everybody knows at least this part, one of his poems, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Right? He says, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And he's talking about death. He's, and he's, he has a bunch of different examples in it. And he says, you know, when a man comes to the end of his life and he feels like he hasn't accomplished what he should have, when he's become a failure, when his work left undone, rage against death. Rage. Fight it tooth and nail. And this idea is exactly what you see Satan doing scripturally. Is he, the end is coming, and he knows he can't win, so he fights like a, like a, a caged animal. And uh, for those of you who are sports fans, have you ever realized your sports team, when they're losing, the last two minutes of the game, they play really well? Isn't that frustrating? You're like, man, Leafs, where was that for the last 60 or 58 minutes, Right? And that's because when you know you have nothing to lose, you become reckless and you just throw caution to the wind because all you need to do is win because if you don't, you're finished. So you fight, you rage against the dying of the light, which is exactly what you're seeing here. So the question we have to ask is, ask is how do we then endure? If that's the case, how do we combat this raging enemy that's in the world? And the answer is in verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their own lives even unto death. And here, it's almost like John was Holy Spirit uh, uh, filled here because it's, it's interesting. There's three, accusations, three powers of the devil, right? Accusation, deception, and death. And the three remedies hit them all. So if the first one was accusations, that you are not good enough, you're not good enough, how do you overcome it? By the blood of the Lamb. Because when the dragon comes and says, you're a guilty sinner, you have to say, yes, I am. But I have the blood of Christ. He has died. And so you combat the accusation with the truth of the gospel. Um, and that means, Sarah, we didn't plan this, even though we are married. But Romans 8, I was going to read, it covers it all. I mean, the whole, the whole chapter, read it, continually tells us over and over, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will condemn us now? You can't. 
So when the accusations come, you say, yes, I am a miserable sinner. Yes, I'm not the father I should be. Yes, I'm not the person I should be. But thank goodness, Christ was the, was the God I needed. So you combat that way. And when he comes with deception, and this is deception of all types, it's not just abortion, it's office politics, it's not just gender, it's budgeting. Every lie that comes into the world slowly ticks away. In fact, just yesterday we watched a very bad adaptation of a Jane Austen movie called Persuasion. And they try to modernize it, right? They try to modernize these old books because they think our, you know, we're too stupid nowadays, I guess, or our attention spans aren't good. So let's add them, let's make them a little more modern so that people will actually watch it, which I think is poppycock, but that's just me. Um, but when they do this, you see, here's a little thing. When they make a character from the, 18th, the 19th century behave like a 21st century uh, feminist woman, then they make the assumption, they tell everybody watching, this is the way women have always thought, this is the way the world has always been, and it's just not true. So what it slowly does is it chips away at truth, bit by bit by bit. When I was in the restaurant industry, um, you have glasses, and you know, every once in a while, you'd be, I don't know if you've ever had this, but you'd be drinking something, and the bottom would just pop out of the glass, or would shatter for no reason. Well, the reason that happens is because every time you put the, the cup in the dishwasher, the minerals in the detergent puts a microscopic little scratch in it. And over thousands of watch, washes, it compromises the integrity of the glass and it eventually breaks. But that only happens over thousands of watch, washes, over and over. And every time there's the deception, the trick, this is the way the world is, this is the way the world is, this is the way the world is, it's slowly eroding our understanding of the truth. So how do we combat it? By the word of our testimony, which is the gospel. We must apply the gospel to everything. This is the, you know, I should all, I should look, I need to love myself before I can love others. This common cry of the modern age. Nonsense. Read the Bible. The gospel says something very different. Love Christ before you can love yourself. And there's lots of things. And we have to continually apply the gospel to accusations and to deception. And lastly is death. They love not their own lives unto death. You see, there's something about being a Christian that robs death of its power because you know it's not the end. See, they weren't even, they're, they're willing to even, they wouldn't even give in to the threats of death because you can't threaten me with death if I don't think it's the end. So, of course, the Christians were willing to die, not because they loved death, but because they had a worldview that allowed them to see the evil in the world and respond to it in a redemptive way and overcome it. And so, this again leads, and, and Christians don't perpetuate the lie that death is the end. We, we free people from that lie. And Martin Luther, again, that beautiful hymn, same thing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. So we have this devil. He is real. He is powerful, but he's defeated. And so we need not fear him. Not because we are capable of overcoming, but because Christ has overcome him. Again, it's that wonderful Martin Luther line again. I can only kill the old man because he's already dead. And for that reason, we as Christians can triumph in the face of evil. We can look at it and admit evil is horrible and it plagues the world, but we know why it happens and we know it's not the last word. If you're not a Christian... The battle is won. There's still time to join the right side. We urge you to do it now. Run to the one who died for you, who conquered not by heaping up dead bodies, but by laying down his own. And with that, let's end.